Good morning, my name is Karen. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 22, one through two. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there they were with him, about 400 men. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Diana. And the New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Look at your situation when you were called, brothers and sisters. By ordinary human standards, not many were wise. Not many were powerful, not many from the upper class. But God chose what the world considers foolish to, to shame the wise. God chose what the world considers weak to shame the strong. And God chose what the world considers low class and low life, what is considered to be nothing, to reduce what is considered to be something to nothing. So no human being can brag in God's presence. The word of the Lord. I'd like to say please stand for the red reading. Y'all always get me. Okay, uh, thank you. Let's see, we'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 15, 29 through 31. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat down there. A great crowd came to him, bringing with them the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They were put them, he put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered, the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, crippled, healthy, lame walking, blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Praise be to our Lord. Praise be to our Lord. Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the goodness of your love toward us. Thank you for the way that you rescue us and save us and heal us and form us together as your family. Lord, let your word Bring light and life to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill us as we hear this, that we would begin to be changed and become more like Jesus. We pray these things in his name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Glenn Packham. I serve here as the pastor at New Life Downtown. We're one of the six congregations of New Life Church, and it's just great to be with all of you. We're all the congregations at New Life uh, during these last couple of months have been in this same sermon series together, and, and we've called this series Kingdom and Chaos. I've made a couple of jokes early on in the series that it sounds like a new Netflix drama, uh, you know, of some kind of medieval age, but it is meant to sort of evoke those kinds of thoughts. When you read 1 Samuel, uh, it is the story of a world in chaos, a world that's doing what's right in their own eyes, and yet in the midst of that chaos, 
God is establishing his kingdom. And so we've looked throughout the series at how it is that God does that through Hannah's prayer and through Samuel's faithfulness and then even through Israel's foolishness and Saul's disobedience. Now we have David on the run. And this is also the third Sunday of Lent, as Brian mentioned during our worship time this morning. And Lent is that season where we journey with Jesus to the cross and we start to think about Jesus in spite of all of the miracles and all the things he's doing, it still is this sort of downward journey toward the cross and the cross looms in the backdrop as you read the gospels. Well, in a similar way, this is the point in 1 Samuel where even though David's been anointed king and even though David's had this epic victory against Goliath, yet the story of David takes a downward descent, a turn towards a difficulty. And so actually the way that the series is lined up is as we've begun this season of Lent, every story that we've been looking at so far is a story that takes us on this downward journey. And so uh, we, we had kind of Saul's envy and last week, uh, Jonathan and David, their steadfast love, even as David is on the run. And this week, we find David not just on the run, but in a cave. And the question we're going to be wrestling with this morning is, what do you do when in the time of need, it doesn't seem like you have the right people around you? It doesn't seem like you have the community that you want. And so last week, you know, maybe you heard the sermon on steadfast love and you're like, oh, that's so great, but good for you. I don't actually have friends like that. What I got are a bunch of sort of, and you don't want to be mean, but you're like, not the people I was hoping for. Well, 1 Samuel 22 is actually a closer look at who are the people that surround David. They are a band of misfits. And so if you've got your Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 22. We're only going to read the first two verses. It's a very short episode, if you will, this morning. But hopefully we're going to go some other places in the scripture and add some layers to this. And it says here in 1 Samuel, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Adullam in Hebrew means refuge. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now stop for a moment and imagine this. The last time we were in a scene with David's family, you remember it was the David and Goliath scene. And the last time David was with his brothers, his brothers were insulting him, saying, what are you doing here, little kid, the runt of the litter? Who, who, whoa, it's your own arrogance that's brought you to the battle. And David says, what, what? This guy's defying God. And then God uses David to bring down the giant. So who knows what his brothers are thinking now? They're like, whoa, David, all right. Hey, we're with him, you know? And then after a while, Saul, the king, turns against David. And so likely, if David is public enemy number one, it's very likely that his, that his family has been marked out too. And so now his father and his father's house and his brothers have come down to the cave and probably they're back to not being happy with David again. And they're like, thanks a lot, bro. Little bro, you got us into this. So there they are with him. That's who's around him. Then verse two, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul. It's a good old church service gathered to him and he became commander over them or in Hebrew captain over them and there were with him about 400 men now it's kind of fun to cross-reference sometimes a story in David's life is cross-referenced by the Psalms because the Psalms give us a little superscript that say hey this Psalm was kind of emerged from this story and the psalm that kind of comes or pairs with this story is Psalm 142. Now look at the psalm here for a minute. And imagine David praying this in the cave of Adullam. 
With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaints before him. I tell my trouble before him. We, we don't have a hard time imagining this. David on the run, crying out to God. Oh, I pour out my complaints. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. He's talking about Saul, probably. Look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. My refuge, remember, Adullam means refuge. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Have you ever been in that place? And then David says, but I cry to you, O Lord, and I say, you are my refuge. You are the, the, the place of safety. My portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. So far, we're like, all right, right on, David. And then this is how his prayer ends. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you deal bountifully with me. Now, we don't know exactly which comes first, which came first. Was it David praying this prayer and then 1 Samuel was written? Is it the other way around? Not, not exactly sure. But imagine if it's this way. Imagine if it's David praying this prayer and he stumbles into the cave in the middle of the night, fleeing from Saul. He's like, okay, good, cave. And he, he thinks he's alone in the cave and he starts praying, oh God, I lifted my complaint to you. Oh God, my pour out my soul. Let the righteous surround me, oh God. And all of a sudden, he hears a big belch from the back corner of the cave. He's like, oh, no, there's others in here. And then he hears like more like, you know, grunting and grunting. He looks around and these guys come with like a, you know, a stick on fire. And they're like, hey, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm David. Who are you? And, and he finds out and he's like, okay, God, I said the righteous. Like, I'm looking for the righteous to surround me. Verse 2, back to 1 Samuel. Remember, it says everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. <laughs> or maybe it was the other way around. Maybe, maybe David goes into the cave, and he sees these guys. And he's like, hey, what are you guys here for? And they're like, well, I'm on the run too. Actually, I owe a lot of minute money. Like, okay, all right, what about you? Like, well, I, I killed a guy. Like, you might want to lay low for a while. <laughs> and then he's like, what about you? And he starts, you know, meeting all these other people. And he's like, okay, great. Well, I'm, I'm David. That's my dad, Jesse. These are my brothers. And they start to kind of talk. And all of a sudden, David says, hey, guys, I was just, uh, I got this prayer. What, you guys want to pray this with me? To you, Lord, we pour out our soul. And he begins to teach these guys to pray with him. And what if by the end of it, David begins to see them as the righteous, the community that he has with him. And somehow as a result, maybe that's why they make him their captain. Maybe that's why they're like, oh, you're pretty good, man. I mean, like you're in a bad spot, but you know a little more about Yahweh than we do. You should be our captain. He's like, okay, I'll be your captain. And then the next chapter, we're told that the group of 400 becomes 600. It's like his congregation is growing. Like, hey, there's a, there's a guy around here who's like teaching us how to pray and stuff, you know. And it he, he, he grows. In 2 Samuel, it's looking back at the, the, these seasons. In 2 Samuel, these men are referred to as David's mighty men. Now, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. 
These are men who were in distress, in debt, and bitter. These are the misfits. These are the rejects. These are the fugitives. These are people, what do you mean? How is it that David becomes captain over them and they become not just misfits, but mighty? Not just misfits, but mighty. You know, I was thinking about this and uh, growing up, this was always kind of how our home was. Uh, my parents, you know, you guys who know them, you know that their, their home even now is like this. But uh, Christmas Eve in our household was always a, um, you just never knew who was going to be joining us until like the day of. And so, you know, we, we grow, before we were a part of this non-denominational church, we were part of a, a kind of a smaller Anglican church. And, and so on Christmas Eve, it'd be like, okay, here's so-and-so, they're, they're new to town, or here's so-and-so, they don't have any family here, and this is so-and-so, and they're, you know, and it was like, you know, I was inviting friends and people who didn't, who came from, you know, maybe there was a friend that I had that came from a Buddhist family whose family didn't celebrate a Christmas, and so he, but then he came over, and all of a sudden, it was like all of us were there, and, you, you know, my mom doesn't just make a few dishes, she'll make like a dozen dishes and so every before you know it it's a feast and by the end of the night we're all singing Christmas carols together and it was like the best and then I remember we when we moved from Malaysia to Portland Oregon my parents were going to Bible school there and you know we were the international student family you know my parents were in their early 40s I was 10 my sister was 13 and uh and others you know other families at the church did welcome us but but my parents were never ones to sort of say hey, who's welcoming us? They were always the ones to say, who can we welcome? And so it wasn't long before all of a sudden our little tiny apartment would be filled up one night a week with all the other international students at the Bible College. And so then there were people from Indonesia and the Philippines and different countries in Africa and, all, and they're all sitting there and we're, everyone's bringing a dish and we're singing songs and they're praying in the spirit and all this stuff. And I'm just like in the basement thinking, wow, like this is crazy. And then we moved back to Malaysia, and you know, a year or so later, my, uh, my parents start this church about an hour outside the capital city. It technically was a developing township, but that's a bit generous because it was really a, a rural uh, shanty town. Developers were sort of you know, driving out and trying to build over it and all this stuff and mixed bag of good and bad, and, and a friend had, had given them a building to meet, with, meet in and so, you know, we did everything the opposite of kind of the American church planting model, you know, where you're supposed to like blitz the neighborhood with postcards and, you know, all this stuff. They did none of that. Um, but, but when the first Sunday morning, I'm like playing the keyboard and there's a few of us and we're just singing. And all of a sudden there's a knock on the door and we're like, who, who, who's heard about the church, you know? And it turns out there are these migrant workers from Indonesia that were part of the construction projects, the development and all this stuff. And they're like, you know, we heard singing, we're Christians, like, we're like, okay, come on in and join us. And then they began to tell more friends. And then next thing you know, there are people from Bangladesh and there are some other migrant workers in the community that started coming. And then the, we were then starting to serve others. And then there was a group of students from China that were attending a community college there, just trying to learn English. And my mom would teach English there. And then they got saved and then they got baptized. And it's the kind of church where the numbers numerically would not have been quote unquote significant, but the number of nations that cycled through there was exponential. And all of a sudden, a group of people that maybe would not have otherwise belonged together found a place of belonging. Misfits became family. But often we miss these moments because we're so fixated on the community we don't have. 
We're so focused on the community we don't have. You know, my friends, they're really not great. And you know, my coworkers are just, they're not the best. And you know, my roommates, they're just got problems. And I joined a meal group. I tried to join a meal group, but boy, was that a weird experience. I hear that one, though. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, it's just, just not the way I want it to be. And we're so obsessed with the community we don't have, we miss the community we do have. We miss the people that are actually right there, that we could be nurturing and cultivating. And decades ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German uh, a theologian and pastor, where he was forming a community of, of young men who were, he was trying to train and raise up. And Bonhoeffer wrote this thin little book called Life Together. The first couple chapters are exceptional. Uh, by the end, it gets a little weird, and he starts to say things like, don't sing in harmony, and it's just kind of funky. But, but the first chapter is really great. I just got to tell you, in case you pick up the book on your way home or something, you're like, well, this, what about that? Uh, anyway, uh, the first chapter of Life Together, Bonhoeffer starts to talk about community. And he starts to talk about how our dream of community often gets in the way of the real community that God has placed us in. And so Bonhoeffer writes, he who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may ever be, may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Someone says, oh, I just love, I just want to start a church. I just want to do something so good. I just want to gather with my friends. I just want to be like a, a really cool, accepting, authentic Christian community. It's so great. But the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. You ever met anyone like that? And he enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. You know that person who shows up and is like, I'm just visiting, you know, your meal group, just checking things out. And then sort of makes a mental checklist and says, mm, they didn't do this, they didn't do this. Like, mm, 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 mm. Right? And then it goes on. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of Christian community. You know someone like this, right? As if his dream is the dream that binds people together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. Oh, there's a lot of blogs. This is great fodder for blogs. <laughs> all the things the church is doing wrong, all the things evangelicals are failing at, and, and some of them are legitimate sins. But what Bonhoeffer is talking about is when you have this constructed ideal, you become the creator of it, and so everybody else falls short, and it puts you in the seat of judgment. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. It's just a lovely phrase. So he becomes... First, an accuser of his brethren, and then an accuser of God, and finally, the despairing accuser of himself. This is the cave of Adullam in reverse. David finds people who are despairing and elevates them to become mighty. Bonhoeffer's talking about the person who goes in mighty with his own ideals and ends up creating a spiral of despair. Oh, this isn't right. This isn't right. I don't like this. I don't, the, the chairs, the parking lot, my meal group, my friends, my apartments, my blah, 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 blah. And you're like, okay, so nothing is right with the world. And you're like, yeah, it's all. <laughs> Bonhoeffer says this is what ends up destroying community itself. But when you look at this story of David 
as the captain of the misfits, we recognize that David the anointed one is just foreshadowing what Jesus the true anointed one would do. Jesus the true son of David. Jesus is the true and better David, the captain of misfits. Or as one of the gospels puts it, the friend of sinners. The one who knows how to find the people on the margins, on the outside, the outskirts, and welcome them in. Matthew's gospel is Matthew chapter 15, where Matthew talks about the story of Jesus going up on the mountaintop, and it says, and Jesus went on from there. By the way, that's Matthew 15, not 22. That was my error in the notes. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain, and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. He healed them. So that the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind, they wondered, they were full of wonder. And they glorified the God of Israel. Now I want to say something to us this morning. We tend to, to fall into one or two extremes in our world today. The one is to not welcome anyone whose lives are not put together. To not welcome anyone who's messy and broken and struggling. In Jesus' own day, there was a quote-unquote kingdom community that lived like that. They were called the Essenes. The Essenes were those that sort of believed that they could live into the age of the kingdom. And they thought that they could kind of set themselves apart. They separated themselves from the flow of life in Israel. And they thought Rome is bad. The temple is corrupt. We're just going to go over here and be pure. We're going to do our own special holy thing. But the Essenes made several critical mistakes. One of them was the Essenes said, we can't have anyone in our community that's lame or blind or in need of healing. We, can't have, we need to have purity in every way. Now, some churches today take that approach. Oh, oh, we, we got to be super pure. We don't want anybody in here that's struggling with sin. I had, I had a person ask me one time, how is it that you let so-and-so come in the door? I said, I'm sorry, our sin scanner is broken. I mean, do we, should we ask you what your Saturday night was like before you come in? We're not going to be like the Essenes. But let me tell you, the other mistake is to say, oh, everybody can just come. And to be loving is just to welcome and accept and to affirm. And it's all just fine. But listen, Jesus doesn't leave the sick sick. Jesus doesn't leave the lame lame. It's not loving to say to the blind, you're fine, I love your blindness. Your blindness is so hip right now. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say to the lame or to the leper, you're so good, you're so great. We, we wanna be a really diverse community, so we've got, we've got people who can walk, now we got lame, this is so great. <laughs> it's not loving to leave the lame lame. It's not loving to leave the blind blind. It's not loving to leave the sick sick. Jesus doesn't exclude, nor does he just blindly welcome. He does what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright calls healing inclusivity. 
healing inclusivity. Jesus welcomes and heals. The crowds came to him sick. Jesus heals them and then helps them to belong. See, with Jesus, the marginalized and the misfit find healing and belonging. With Jesus, the marginalized and the misfit find healing and belonging. And then as the story goes on, we're told about the people being hungry. And it says in Matthew's gospel, he says, and Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion in the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get bread in such a desolate place? Somebody say with me, desolate place. place. That's where they were, a desolate place. To feed so great a crowd. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. Jesus is like, well, I wouldn't say it's totally desolate then, right? You got something. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish and having given thanks or blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and the disciples gave it to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Now look, with Jesus, the desolate place becomes a place of abundance. With Jesus, the place that was supposed to be a desert ends up becoming a banquet. With Jesus, the place of not enough becomes a place of more than enough. And Jesus gets the disciples involved. That's maybe my favorite part of the story. I mean, look, if you're going to do a miracle, like, just make it plop down on their laps. Like, if you're going to multiply anyway, just why not do the miracle, not just of multiplication, but the miracle of distribution? But you know what? Jesus wants us in on it. Jesus wants us to be involved in it. And so he says, what do you have? And like, what we have is not enough. He says, I know, I'll do the multiplying. Will you do the distributing? You see, oftentimes we ignore the community around us. The community that we actually have, our actual friends, our actual neighbors, our actual coworkers. Because we're waiting till we have abundance. So this is what I say a lot. I don't have margin for that. Sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's healthy to like understand we all have limits and we all have limitations. All of that's true. But listen, if we wait until we have an abundance of time and resources before we help someone, you'll never help someone. We, we saw last week that Jonathan was in a place of strength and David was a fugitive. This week, it's different. They're all fugitives. And David arrives at the cave and he doesn't say, okay, you 400 guys, look, man, I don't got anything either, so good luck. He says, okay, you don't have anything, I don't have anything, but God is faithful. To you, O oh Lord, we lift up our soul. We cry out. And Jesus does the similar thing with his disciples. He says, what do you have? We don't, we don't have enough, just seven loaves. He's like, okay, I'll take that. I'll take your 30 minutes a week. I'll take your one hour a week with one child at Kids Hope and turn that into more than you could imagine. I'll take your one week out of the summer with Royal Family Kids Camp and I'll do in the foster kid community more than you could ever imagine. I'll take your little time once a month with your meal group and I'll multiply it more than you can imagine. I'll do the multiplication, you do the distribution. Join me in this. And see, when you see Jesus as the true and better David, you start to understand, oh, oh, the church is the cave of Adullam. 
If Jesus is the true and better David, then the church is called to be like the cave of Adullam. You see, the church, the church is not the country club for the put together. The church is not the Christian version of all those who are hashtag blessed. <laughs> the church is not the place of all those Christians who are insta-famous. You can say, look at me, my fab life. Church is the place where we look around and say, oh, you too, huh? Yeah, man, whoo. <laughs> but God, right? But God. Church is this cave of Adullam where unlikely people who have no business belonging to one another end up belonging together in a family. When the church of Jesus Christ started in the New Testament, started in the first century, when the followers of Jesus started gathering in homes, they started realizing, we got to tear down some of these social barriers. Male and female, it's okay, we're our brothers and sisters, Jews and Gentiles, we're part of the same family, slaves are free, whatever hierarchies, whatever social barriers, it's all coming down in Jesus' name. It's all coming down. And the church becomes this place where misfits get fit together as family. Something different happens. Desolation turns into abundance and a wilderness becomes a feast. This week we were gathered together. Once a month we have a uh, a staff meeting at New Life where all the members of the different congregations at New Life get together. And a lot of times it's like a chapel. We worship and pray and Pastor Brady will give us a great charge. And, and this week, uh, we took some time to actually hear some stories from some of the other congregations. And we, we, we were just blown away listening to some of the things that was happening. Uh, New Life Friday night, my friend Daniel Grothy told a story about a woman who was making the step to get out of an abusive relationship and the only place she was, could find to live was her car. And she showed up on a service at Friday night, desperate, and somehow she met this older woman who herself had gone through so much heartbreak and difficulty, who could have said, you guys, I got nothing. <laughs> but she met this younger lady and she said, I, well, I don't have much, but I do have an extra room. You're going you're gonna to move in with me. She starts taking care of her. New Life Manitou, a friend of ours from New Life Manitou, told a story about a young lady who was a heroin addict and had come off of heroin but was still very much in the habit of, 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 of a marijuana addiction. And she was driving on a Sunday morning in Manitou on her way to a pot farm, as one does. <laughs> And she saw a sign that said, New Life Manitou. And she said, I don't know, maybe I should just go to church this morning instead of going to the pot farm. And she comes in, and as the people of God are singing and praying, she gets so moved, she runs out to her car during the offering and collects the change and the dollar bills that she was going to spend on pot that morning and puts it all in the offering that day. She starts to find friends and community. She got baptized. Wow. That's the church being the cave of Adullam. A couple weeks ago when the snowstorm hit, or rather the bomb cyclone, <laughs> it took the roof off of a, a, a building in town called the Crawford House, which houses homeless veterans. 
And our, a couple of our local outreach pastors, Rion and Melton, were aware of this need in the community. They said, what can we do? He said, don't worry, we've got insurance, all this stuff. The roof is going to be repaired, but we need a place for these 14 vets to stay. And so right away, New Life North decided to cover extended stay hotels for these 14 veterans that were going to be homeless. And covers it all of a sudden. This is the church taking care of the community that we have not being stuck wishing for a different kind of community. See, this is the problem. This is the problem when we start wanting church to be full of people who are just like us. And we've got this kind of American thing of saying, well, just me and my friends on my back deck, that's my church. I hear that like, you know, it's Colorado. I hear it like every month, you know. (laughs) Like, I'm sure your back deck is great, but that's not church. Cultivate friendships. Get your brothers. That's awesome. That's not church. It's not church if there's no one there whom you wouldn't have invited. It's not church if there's no one there who's not like you. It's not church if it's not a family that wouldn't otherwise be a family if not for Jesus. That's what makes it church. I think about when New Life Downtown began almost seven years ago. We're like meeting in this old church on South Weber. Some of you were there. I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what are you doing? What's happening here? And then that's that first summer, right around the same time that we made the move into Palmer High School, we said, let's do groups a little bit differently. Like, instead of, like, you know, drawing it up by different lines, let's just open it up and ask people to host, like, potlucks in their home. We'll just call them meal groups. Someone said it sounded like prison meal groups. I said, I don't know, but this is what we're going to call it. <laughs> so we called it meal groups. And then all of a sudden people that wouldn't normally otherwise fit together began to gather around a meal together. You got people from different age groups, different stages of life. Look, we had like people from downtown and people from Briargate together. It's <laughs> radical. We had like the bicycle riding coffee snob hipster and the Starbucks drive-through minivan, minivan driving soccer moms, like in the same group. It was amazing. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the community began to be formed. The church can be like the cave of Adullam. Paul says to the Corinthians, He gets frustrated with them because the Corinthians are insinuating that Paul doesn't have the right status. And they're kind of hinting, more than a little hint, more than just hinting at the fact that he's a tent maker. And they're like, if you were a really good, impressive teacher, people would pay for you. (laughs) And Paul says, listen, look at your situation when you were called, brothers and sisters, by ordinary human standards. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were from the upper class. This is Paul like at his pastoral best, you know. (laughs) Gentle Paul, such a sweet parish priest. But God chose what the world considers foolish to shame the wise. God chose what the world considers weak to shame the strong. And God chose what the world considers low class and low life, what is considered to be nothing, to reduce what is considered something to nothing. So no human can brag in God's presence. No human can brag. We're all here today because Jesus is the captain of the misfits. 
Jesus is the king of the people who don't seem like they belong. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the one who says, come on, come on, you and you and you and you, you can all be welcome here at the foot of the cross. It's level ground. At the table of Jesus, everyone gets to eat. In fact, Jesus flips the whole script because we've been talking about how David found himself with people that he would not have chosen. And we've been talking about how church has to include people that we would not choose. And yet Jesus flips the script. And in John 15, he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. That's why Jesus is even better than David. Because it wasn't just that Jesus sat on a mountaintop and the crowds came to him. It's also that Jesus is how God came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is God looking, saying, where are the people on the margins? Where are the ones who've been squeezed out? Where are the people who've failed? Where are the people who've covered their faces in shame? Where are the people who've tried to find obscure caves in the middle of nowhere so they could eke out an existence? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I came not to be served, but to serve and to seek and save the lost. You didn't choose me. I chose you. The Scottish theologian John Swinton says when Jesus sits with the marginalized, the margins get shifted. I like that. We think we're doing people favors. You're, not, you're just recalibrating where the center really is. Because if Jesus is here, then what you thought was the middle of the action ain't really the middle of the action. And what you thought was the margin is actually the heart of the kingdom of God. Would you bow your heads this morning? Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.